At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be continuing a sermon series we began last Sunday today as we are walking our way through the book of Galatians. Uh, But before we kick that series off, I I just want to say that if you are looking for a way to get involved in what Wildwood is doing through a a financial gift, just know that there are boxes by each of the doors where you can leave an offering as you leave today. Also, there's opportunities to give online. Also, would just uh, invite you, if you have something that you would like for us to pray for, if you're here in the room with us after the service, you're welcome to come up front here at the foot of the cross. There'll be some available to pray with you at this time. Or if you'd like to submit that request online, because either you're home or you just don't have time after the service today to do that, you can always leave a prayer request anytime at wildwoodchurch.org pray. Just as an honor for us to be able to pray with you and for you as a part of our church family. Well, it's great to be together and it's great to once again be able to dive into God's Word. We're going to be in a series that we began last week called The New Way, anchored in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. We saw last week that in this section of God's Word, the Apostle Paul is basically presenting the new way of Jesus and contrasting it with the old way of the law. And what we saw last week is that this new way of Jesus is far superior to the old way of the law. And Paul gave that argument to encourage the Galatians, and it shared for us to encourage us to not drift back to only what we can do in our performance, but really to rest in the promises of God. Warren Wiersbe summarized what we saw last week this way. He said that those who were opposing Paul's message of living in the new way of Jesus were a group of people called the Judaizers. They were unbelieving Jewish people who were arguing and telling people that what they really needed was the law, not Jesus alone. Wiersbe said this, he said, The Judaizers wanted to add to God's grace and take from God's promises. They had no right to do this since they were not parties in the original covenant. They were coming along and saying, God's grace is not enough. You need to add your good works to what God has done. And in so doing, they were taking something from the promise of God. And friends, make no mistake, our salvation is on the basis of the promise of God. Now, when I say that, some of you recoil just a little bit because you think, wait a minute, I thought that our salvation was on the basis of Jesus. And that is true. Our salvation is not possible apart from God sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to take the penalty from our sins that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Without the death of Christ, nothing is possible. But how does Jesus' death get credited to our account? Well, it comes on the basis not of our performance, but on the basis of a promise of God that we believe in. We're going to see that today as we look at the second part in this series in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. But before we look at those verses, I want to talk for just a moment about a promise. When I say that our salvation is based on a promise, some of you are getting a little bit uneasy because your experience with promises has not been very good. Those who have given you promises in your life have often broken them. And so you have a distrust of the promise of another. 
know, this reality uh, came clear to me uh, in, in my role as a father. When Josh was young, he would come and say, Dad, can we play this game? Dad, can we shoot baskets? Dad, can we do something? And often my response to him would be, yes, son, in a minute. Well, that worked for a while. But later on, Josh came back to me and I said, in a minute. And he said, Dad, I know something about your minutes. They're longer than you think that they are. And it reminded me again of just one of the many areas where I fall short. But when I say that our salvation is based on a promise, some of you are thinking about all the broken promises that you've experienced in life. And you think, I don't want to hitch my wagon to something that might not come through. But friends, here's what you need to know. Our salvation is based on a promise, but it's not the promise from a fallible dad. It's a promise from our heavenly father. It's a promise from the one who says that I will bless you if you are in Christ. I will save you if you just trust in him. Friends, that is the nature of our salvation. It is based on a promise. And this morning, we're going to see that truth come clear as we look at just four verses in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn there? We're going to spend the balance of our time in these verses. I want to read them for us, and then we'll back up and make some observations. As, as I prepare to read them, just tune your ears to the word promise. In those four verses, four times the word promise is referenced. In this entire section of the rest of chapter 3, eight times Paul will mention the word promise. So it's a very important concept in light of this section. So let me read verses 15 through 18 for us, and then we'll make two observations today. The Apostle Paul writes to his friends in Galatia, and he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, when I read that, if that's the first time you've heard that, you might be a little confused and lost. My hope is, as we look at this together today, that those words will come clear and you'll see the hope that is found only by embracing God's promise to us. So we're going to see this in two movements today. What's the first thing we're going to see? First thing we're going to see is this. We're going to see something of our spiritual history, something of our spiritual history, an orientation to that. Now, when I say our spiritual history, I don't mean just your individual story, though our stories certainly fit into this. By that, I mean how we fit into the big story, the big history of what God is doing in relationship to his people. What we see inside of these verses is Paul is talking about a lot of different things that have happened in salvation history. Well, what is he referring to? Well, the first section that he refers to is what he refers to as the beforehand gospel. The beforehand gospel. He does this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
Now, Abraham lived a long, 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 long time ago, not in a galaxy far, far away, but in the Middle East. So Abraham lived in that area. And God came to Abraham and he initiated a relationship with him. The relationship that God initiated with Abraham was not because Abraham had won a spiritual beauty pageant. It's because God just chose to initiate a relationship with Abraham. But God's plans for the relationship with Abraham were far more than just what would be the story of Abraham or his family. It's about all that would happen on the other side of him. God understood that the world was broken. Sin sin had entered the world. Mankind, men and women, had fallen. And God was to initiate a rescue plan to save them. When God comes to Abraham, he is basically communicating the gospel in bud form. What I mean by that is, when you look at a rose, the rose has everything in it already. All of the beauty of that rose is wrapped up tight. You can't see it all yet, but it's already there. By calling God's message to Abraham a beforehand gospel, we see the gospel in its bud form there. We can't see all of its splendor. If we were to go and look at Genesis 12, which we're going to do in just a moment, where God initiated that relationship with Abraham, you will not see the name of Jesus mentioned at all. And yet, what God was to do through Jesus is present in this promise to Abraham. Because it would be through one of Abraham's descendants that all of the people on the earth would have an opportunity to experience the blessing of God, not on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of his promise. That was the message that God gave to Abraham in what Paul refers to here as the beforehand gospel. Now, that beforehand gospel era would last for what Paul would call a period of 430 years until this new era comes, which is the era of the law. Now, by law, what do I mean? I mean the law that God gave to Charlton Heston on the mountain, right? The law that God gave to Moses. God initiated a special relationship with one particular nation, the nation of Israel. He gives them the Ten Commandments, he gives them the law, and then there's an extended period of time where this one nation is living out a relationship with God on the basis of that law. Now, that era is referred to in Galatians 3.17. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What Paul is saying is there's some different dynamics that are happening in the middle section, in this era of the law, than were happening back here in the beforehand gospel period. There was this law, there was this call to obedience. But what Paul is saying is what what happened in this era does not change the fact that God desires to bless us on the basis of his promise and not our performance. Whatever else was to be said about the law era, that that section of the the Bible that is really one of the longest sections from the book of Exodus all the way to that Italian prophet Malachi. Okay, you're you're with me. Malachi, from, from Exodus to Malachi, in that whole section of the scriptures, God was doing something, revealing something of his character, but he was not fundamentally changing the reality that it's by his grace that we are saved. The law did not create the people of God. The law validated that there was a people of God. 
Now, the dynamics of what God was doing in that era of the law is something we'll see in depth next Sunday as we continue Paul's journey through Galatians chapter 3. But it's important for us to see it in our salvation history. The beforehand gospel era, the era of Abraham, the law era of Moses, and then we would say there is the Jesus gospel era. The Jesus gospel era that Paul refers to in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to the many, but referring to the one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, the promise that God made to Abraham that was here in a bud form becomes to full bloom when we realize that the offspring was Jesus, and all who trust in Jesus are the ones who are blessed of God. This gospel message is the message that Jesus brought when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago. And all of us who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins are living in this era of our salvation history, but we are living out the blessings and fulfillment of a promise that God had made from the very beginning. Now, friends, when you walk through this, you wonder why is Paul walking through this spiritual history? Why the history lesson? And the answer, I think, is quite simple. It's what he says in verse 15. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. This idea of a man-made covenant, this word covenant also could be translated will. Even in a human's last will and testament, once it is written, it is not up to other people to just arbitrarily change it. In other words, if grandpa passes away and he gives the farm to your brother, you cannot, after he dies, just decide that you get the farm. You can't change it. And if it's that way with a man-made will, how much more so is it with a covenant that is based on the faithfulness of God? The argument is, if God made a promise back there to Abraham, it is still on the basis of that promise that he is blessing us today in Christ. And what this reveals to us, friends, is that we are not the product of God just splurging on us unintentionally, but God has been at work from the very beginning preparing a way for us to be saved. You know, yesterday I went to the store, and before I went to the store, I I made a list of the things that I needed to buy at the store. Now, here's the question. Do you think that I came home with only those items on the list, or do you think I came home with some extra stuff? The answer is that I came home with some extra stuff, stuff that I did not go in there to buy, but I just bought on an impulse. Now, that happens with cheap things that don't mean that much to us. We see something, it catches our eye, we throw it in the cart, and we move on. But people don't just accidentally, on a whim, in a splurge, come home with a Ford F-150 right? That doesn't happen that way. Those purchases are things that we plan for, things that we save for, things that we intentionally step into. There are things that we buy on a whim. There are things that we buy as a result of deep planning. What this section reveals to us, friends, is that we are not God's impulse buy. He didn't say, you know what? I I guess I'll just take a Joel. You know, come on, Joel, get in the cart. I, you know, you're here at the checkout line. I guess I can do something for you. He didn't say that to Jennifer. He doesn't, that's not the way it works, right? 
It's not the way it works. What we see in this passage is that God has planned from long ago. He has planned for our salvation. He sent Jesus for you. He had a plan for you. We're not an accident. God has made a promise and a commitment to save all who are in Christ. So the first thing we see is our spiritual history. But a second thing that we see, and this is very, very important for us to see, is that our spiritual hope is anchored to a promise. Our spiritual hope is anchored to a promise. Now, we've seen hints of that already today, but I want us to go down deep to understand the the significance of that statement, that our spiritual hope is anchored to a promise. Now, when I talk about our hope being anchored to a promise, some of you are, are thinking this. You're thinking of a promise that goes this way. God, I promise. I promise, God. I promise that if you get me out of this jam, then I will be this devout follower of Jesus. God, I promise that if you bring my relative back from the brink of this health crisis, then I will do whatever you want me to do. God, I promise that if you will just forgive what I did last night, then I will go and do whatever you want me to do today and tomorrow and the next day. See, we are prone to think that our salvation is about our promise with God, as if it is a bargain, that we go before God and we put out the terms and we say, God, I will, I will, I will, I will. And eventually God says, okay. Well, how much security is there if that is the arrangement of our salvation? The answer, friends, it's not much because we commit to things all the time that we don't fulfill. Our word is weak. We're like a father that says in a minute. It's not that promise, us to God, that our salvation is anchored to. It's the promise that comes in the other direction. It's the promise from God to us. And if you need proof of that, Let's go back and look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That's where God initiated with Abraham. At that time, his name was called Abram. God comes to Abram, and he says this to him. He says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Then catch this. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isn't that amazing? At the very beginning, when God initiated with Abraham, the one who is the pattern that will come for us, it was on the basis of what God promised to Abraham. Not what Abraham promised to God. Abraham didn't come to God and say, God, I need help out of a jam. Let me, let me strike a deal with you. No. God said, Abraham, I'm God, and I'm going to promise you some amazing things. I'm going to promise to make your name great. I'm going to promise to have you be a conduit for my blessing to flow to all the people of the world. Abraham, that is something that will happen on the basis of my promise to you not on the basis of your promise or promises to me. It's an amazing, amazing statement. 
So after this promise is, is given to Abraham, what happens next? Well, the answer is not much. Abraham leaves. But at the core of Abraham's understanding of this promise would be that his family would grow and that he would have a lot of children. And yet their tent was still pretty empty. As they're traveling around, Abraham and Sarah every night are looking at each other going, I wonder if we misheard God. I wonder if our womb will ever open. Well, one of those nights where they're having this doubt, God shows up to Abram. He calls him out of the tent and he has this conversation with him. He says, look up toward the heaven, Abram, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, just just for a moment, I want to just think about the the beauty of, of the Lord in this. God comes and gives him a symbolic reminder of his promise. And what is that reminder? That reminder is the stars. Now, here's the question, friends. How many nights are the stars in the sky? The answer is all of them. They're always up there. Now, there are times that we can't see them because of clouds, but we're thinking like an Oklahoman. Let's think like somebody who's living in the southern half of what is the modern-day nation of Israel. Went there a few years ago and was asking some people there about the, just the, the rain and the cycle. In the southern half of Israel, you want to guess how much rain happens in that area of the country? A quarter of an inch of rain a year. A quarter of an inch of rain a year. How many nights do you think Abraham and Sarah were able to look up and see the stars in an environment that rained that little? Isn't it amazing the, the beauty of God, His faithfulness? He gives them a reminder. He gives us the Scripture. He gave them the stars, something we have access to all the time so that we would hear again and again and again the promise of God. Well, Abraham and Sarah looked up, they see the stars, and they, they say in that moment, they say, we believe. Abram, Abram said, I believe what you're saying to me, God, that you will make of me a mighty nation, that you will make my descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. I believe you. And in that moment, God said to him, you are righteous, Abraham. Now, if it had been on the basis of the law, God would have said, Abraham, I like your, your go get them attitude. But what you need to do now is you need to go out and you need to live a really good life. And here are a bunch of things you need to do. And if you do all of these things, then I will make your name great. Then I will give you descendants. Then I will, then I will, then I will. That's the way of the law. That's not what happened. Because it was on the basis of a promise. It was activated in Abram's life merely by his belief. That's what happens with a promise. Promises become effective in our lives merely when we believe them. And that's what happened in this situation with Abram. And he becomes the example for us. Well, after Abram believes God and God credits it to him as righteousness, they're going to to ratify this deal. Now, up to this time, you might think of it this way, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where God initiates this relationship with Abraham, it was kind of a handshake deal between Abraham and God. But when you get to chapter 15, they're going to make it legal. They're going to draw up the paperwork. 
And in that day, when you're going to make something legal and drop the paperwork, you don't go to the local abstract company and you don't get the attorneys present. Instead, they would make a covenant. And the way that they made a covenant is they would gather animals and this is a little bloody for our day and age, but it was common in that time, they would take those animals and they would split them down the middle and they would lay half of the animal on this side and half of the animal on that side. And then after those animals were set, the two parties that were making the covenant together would walk in between those animals, making this symbolic statement. If I fail to hold up my end of the bargain in light of this agreement, May it be done to me as was done to these animals. In other words, may I be killed. May I give my life if I don't follow through with what I have committed to. So they're going to make this kind of agreement. And so God says to Abram, Abram, I want you to cut the animals. And Abram understands the symbol. Abram cuts the animals. He lays them out. And then after Abram lays them out, he's tired. And he lays down. And the scripture tells us that he fell into a deep sleep. And it was during the time of his slumber that God comes to him, and this is what happens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire part and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You see what happened? Abram didn't walk through the animals. Abram was asleep. God himself passed through, and this was the picture. God was saying, Abram, I promise that I will bless you, that I will make your name great, that the world will be blessed through your descendant. God alone was responsible to make that happen. It was on the basis of God's promise, not Abram's performance. Now, with that big history lesson, as we look back to how it began, that is the pattern for us. That's what these verses are saying in Galatians 3. The pattern for us is that the promise of God is what leads to our salvation. It's what prompts our spiritual growth. It's not our performance. It's what God has committed to us. And this becomes clear in what we see in verse 16. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to the many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. The big idea of this is that God made a promise to Abram and then God transferred that promise that he made to Abram over to Jesus, who was ultimately a descendant of Abraham. It would be through Jesus that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed, not on the basis of others' performance, but on the basis of God's promise. All those who embrace Jesus, God will bless with eternal life. All those who believe in him, God will bless with forgiveness in the gift of the Holy Spirit. All those who reject him will be cursed. It's on the basis of God's promise and not our performance that our salvation is anchored. But I want to go even one step further. The promise that we see here transfers. It's not just a promise from God the Father to Abraham, but it's a promise from God the Father to who? God, the Son. Friends, the security of our salvation is found in a promise from God the Father to God the Son. God the Father said, all who are in you, Jesus, I will save. All who have trusted you, Jesus, I will save forever. All who have trusted you, Jesus, I will give the blessing of my Holy Spirit. And so this promise that is the anchor of our salvation 
is not a promise that God has even just made to one of us, but it's a promise that he has made to Jesus and all who are in him take advantage of it. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Why do I believe in our eternal security? Why do I believe that if we are saved, we cannot lose it? Because it's not about my performance. And it's not about yours either. It's about the promise that God the Father made to God the Son. Now, what, how do we see that play out in the rest of the New Testament? Well, as it relates to our salvation, there are a number of times that Jesus talks about the security of those who are in Him. In John chapter 17, verse 12, as Jesus is praying on the night before He goes to the cross, He says, I've not lost any of those, Father, that You have given to Me. The promise here that went to Abraham, I've not lost them. I've, I've kept them. And He's keeping us now even still. In John chapter 10, in verse 28, Jesus said, Those that are in Me, no one can snatch them out of My hands. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and through 39, the Apostle Paul says, There is nothing in heaven or earth that can separate us from the love of God. It's a promise of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes to his protege Timothy, and he says, Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Our hope of salvation is on the basis of his promise, his commitment to Christ and all of those who are connected to him. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we see a, a summary of our assurance that we can have of our salvation when John writes and says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. How can we know that we have eternal life? We can know that we have eternal life if we believe in Jesus, because if we are in him, God has made a promise from God the Father to God the Son, to save us and to bless us in Him. Not only is this true of our salvation, but it's also true of our spiritual growth. Verses like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says to the Philippians, he says, I'm confident that the one who has begun a good work will carry it on in you to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God has committed to our growth and development. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 talks about our spiritual life as a, a life of working out what God has worked into us. Now, by this, I don't mean that our, our earthly life is, is all going to be the same. It's not. We will grow at different paces on the way that we respond in faith to God's initiation in our lives. But if we are in Christ, our spiritual growth will ultimately peak when God sanctifies us completely when we go into His presence. Friends, our salvation and our spiritual growth are products of the promise of God, a promise of forgiveness, a promise of the gift of the Spirit, a promise of being a new creation in Him, a promise of being connected to this movement where we are a holy priesthood before God, that we have access to Him directly. These are the promises of what God has given to us in Him. Now, what's interesting about all of this and the, the hope and the promise is Paul's going to conclude with something very interesting in verses 17 and 18. 
What Paul says in 17 and 18 is he says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What Paul is saying is we can't have it both ways. Either our salvation and our spiritual growth are the basis of God's promise or they're a product of our performance, but we cannot have it both ways. We cannot mix the two because for us to add to our our performance, then suddenly what we get from God becomes what we have earned, not what God has graciously extended to us. We cannot mix the two. Now, given all of this reality, how might you and I respond to this truth? Well, a few things. The first thing that I think about when I think of our response to the truth we've seen in the Scripture today is to respond with thanksgiving, to respond by hitting our knees and thanking God for our salvation and for our spiritual growth. That's where it begins. Friends, if if you are here today and you're a believer and follower in Jesus, and this message does not drive you to be thankful to God for His work and His grace in your life, then I have done a poor job of preaching it. Because it's not the, it's not, the message is worth that response. The truth of the Scripture is worth that response. That we might respond to this by simply saying thank you to God. And for those of us who have known Christ for years, that we respond in thanksgiving for the relationship that we have with Him, that He has established, and the growth that He has worked in our life from then until now, and what He will do in the days ahead. We can thank Him for that. But friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, know that that prayer of thanksgiving is also available to you, and it can begin with a thanksgiving to God, saying, God, thank you for saving me today, right now, in this moment. Thank you for your promise to bless those who are in Christ. I I want to be in Christ. I want to trust in Him for the forgiveness of my sin, that I might experience His blessing as well. One of the responses is the response of thanksgiving. But a second of the responses is this, that we can share this promise with others. And I want to to couple this with the third response, and that is to not complicate the gospel. See, friends, sometimes we just complicate this message so much. If we are saved, it's because God the Father made a promise to God the Son that all who are in Christ would be forgiven and freed from the consequences of their sin. That's a simple message that you believed that you now have the privilege of sharing with others. But when we think of evangelism, whether it's evangelism in this town or evangelism on the other side of the planet, we complicate it so much. We think that effective evangelism must also include a perfect lifestyle. We think, you know, I will share my faith when I begin to live perfectly out all the commands of Christ. But if that is our criteria before we begin, then we have confused the gospel and we have complicated it. We share the message not as perfect people, but as imperfect people saved by grace. May we be willing to share that simple message of where our hope and forgiveness are found. 
If we do the same thing with knowledge, we think, well, I will share my faith when I get all of my questions answered or when I have all of the right words. The reality is we have complicated the gospel. If we wait until we have all of our question answers and we, we have all of the words, then we will we'll never begin. Friends, may we not complicate the gospel. The simple gospel that saved us is the simple gospel that can save your friend or your relative, your neighbor. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, For if I was saved by a simple gospel, then I am bound to preach that same simple gospel until I die, so that others too may be saved by it. How will we reach out and share this simple message of hope in Christ to a world in need today? Friends, our spiritual hope is that it is anchored to a promise. Now, with that, I I want to conclude with uh, an illustration that comes also from Spurgeon in a message that he preached on the book of Galatians 140 years ago. This is what he said. He said, Remember that the safety of the weak and of the strong believer rests upon the same foundation. On board one of the fine steamboats that flit between England and America, there is a strong, hardy, vigorous man. Will he get to America safely? Yes, if the ship does. But yonder is a little child that cannot walk and has to be carried in its mother's arms. Will it reach America safely? Yes, if the ship does. Both the robust man and the crying infant, all being well, will reach their journey's end if the ship does. Their safety lies in the same place. Their condition does not affect their transit. But is there no difference between the child and the man? Assuredly, there is a great deal of difference as to many things, but there is no difference about the fact that their passage across the ocean depends upon the steamboat rather than upon themselves. The strong man could not walk across the Atlantic any more than the child could. They are alike incompetent for the passage if left alone and alike capable of it if placed on board the same vessel. So if you meet with a great saint, say to yourself, my honored brother will get to heaven through Jesus Christ, and I, a poor babe in grace, shall get to heaven the same way. Friends, we have seen that our salvation is anchored to the promise of God. Now, next Sunday, we're going to look more in depth at this era of the law. If the law was not given to save us, what is the purpose of the law? Paul will answer that question for us. If you're wondering, what's up with Exodus through Malachi? Come back next Sunday, and we'll take a look at that together. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you so much for just this opportunity to be together today and to open your word and to study it. I pray that that we would be a people who embrace your promise, that we understand that you have promised to do so much for us in Christ, to save us, to equip us, and to guide us. We thank you for that, and we pray that we would proclaim that simple message to all that we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 